Hello there. Welcome back to The Bleeding Truth. My name's Sally McNally. I'm the Irish midwife. And I'm Bridget, Sally's daughter. We're continuing our episodes on powerful women that we know and powerful women that we want you to get to know. And today we are so blessed to introduce to you Dr. Shannon Enox. She is doctor of nursing practice. She has is board certified psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. And uh, she's also one of my very, very best friends. I've known Shannon for many years and I send her some of my patients because I truly trust all of the great stuff that she's got for them. So welcome, Shannon. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, both of you. I appreciate it. And I adore both of you. And Sally, I send you people too, not because you're my friend, but because I know what your philosophy is. And that's really important to send someone, send your clients to someone that you trust. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're so happy to have you here. (laughs) Thank you so much, Bridgie. Bridget, yeah. sorry, uh, just there. So we, it's okay, you can call me. We call her Bridgie. Yeah, Bridgie. I know so, we've all, we've known you for so long and, you know, even Alex and Brennan, yeah. shout out to them yes, too. Yes, they, they said to make sure I tell you guys hi. Aww. So Shannon, um, with my small introduction, there's lots more that uh, you could tell us that you yes. actually do. Yes. Um, so, so explain more of what... Uh, type of patient what do you what do you do with them um you do functional psychiatry yes I I do yes I do all so basically you know I do the same thing as a psychiatrist I just took a little bit different path to get there and that I'm a nurse and we're just wired a little bit differently both are really important and both have really good um things that we do the as soon as I got into psychiatry I realized that so many people don't want to take medication They, you know, there's such a stigma attached to it, which is unfortunate. And I hope that we are starting to see a change with our Gen Z kids and our young millennials that they're not about having this baloney that we're not supposed to take care of our mental health. But all of the previous generations, you know, were taught that if you can't handle it on your own, then you're weak. And if you need to take medication for your mental health, you're weak and you're a failure and it's there's something wrong with you. Not that your brain is as important as your heart or your lungs or, you know, the vital organs that you have. So it became this journey of seeing that someone needed support, them knowing that they needed support, but also really struggling internally with taking medication or not. So that got me focused on, I mean, I've always been a little bit more holistic, but functional and integrative psychiatry, which is the use of supplements and vitamins, replacing what our food is lacking to then see what symptoms are still left remaining. Um, So thank you for that. Yeah, I I have some of the patients that I've sent to you Mm -hmm. who have had postpartum depression, Mm -hmm. they come back and they're like, I didn't need medication. Mm-hmm. She just told me to take these supplements and I feel like myself again. It's amazing. I'm like really amazed. Yeah, yes, it's thanks. amazing. Our food so looks great. like food, tastes like food, has nothing that it used to have. And the example I'll give is magnesium. And that's that if mm-hmm. you took all the magnesium you ate yesterday or all the food you ate yesterday and all of the magnesium in that food would have equaled about 125 to 150 milligrams of magnesium. If you ate that same exact amount of food in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even the early 1980s, you would have gotten between 400 and 450 milligrams of magnesium. So magnesium plays a huge role in depression, anxiety, and focus issues. So what's causing that, that 
big discrepancy there. How quickly we turn over our crops and how depleted our soil is. You know, when we, yeah, yeah, when they replant the crops too quickly, they only replace, I don't remember the exact number, but they only replace two or three of the, of the minerals that, um, would be yeah. out of like 29 that would be available wow. had they taken the time and we planted things appropriately and not just for, yes. you know, money. Yeah. So interesting. And then of course yeah. we're more sedentary as yes. well. Yes. What about exercise? Yes. Exercise is super important. And if you look at the pandemic, I mean, even if you were active before the pandemic, all of us have a lower level of movement. We're getting more into old life, right? The way it used to be before that, but for people, I'll even say for like me, who I work remotely from home now, I mean, there are days if I'm not actively working out, it's embarrassing how few steps I take. (laughs) So it's something that we all have to be aware of, right? And that takes, that has Mm -hmm. a big role in your mental health as well, is how active you are, how much sleep you're getting. You know, the first thing that I try and fix with any of my clients is sleep. That's if you fix sleep, you can fix almost anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, was one of the things I do with my patients when they're like come back after six weeks mm-hmm. postpartum checkup and they're like exhausted. They're like little raccoons oh, with dark yeah. circles yes. and they're like, I'm happy, but I'm crying every day. Well, you're not that happy then, right? Yeah. If you're crying every day. Yeah. And I talk about sleep being so important. We make a plan that dad is going to feed the baby two nights a week. Nice. She's like, well, he has to go to work. Yeah, but yeah, you need to sleep. Yeah, and you have your work. We need you, you alive. I mean, that's at the yes, end of the day. Right. We need you alive. And one yes. of the things that I recommend is that, uh, especially in the first months after a baby's born, that a mom or delivering person that they get at least one four-hour chunk of sleep a night. It doesn't matter if they get seven or eight hours. If they're only getting an hour and a half each time, they're not getting yes. a significant enough period of sleep that's going to impact their mood in a positive way. So. So definitely mm-hmm. taking turns, right? Um, but also if dad can help like with the first shift, first shift of sleep so that um, the mom or delivering a person could have four hours, that makes all the difference. Yes, it's that yeah. unbroken deep sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always say sleep deep and wake up happy. Yes. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> the struggle is real. So many people struggle yeah. with that. No one yeah. understands sleep hygiene. It's also yes. like when you're younger, people can get away with it. Mm-hmm. And then as you start getting yeah. older, I, I even feel it. Like I, when I was like 20, I could, you know, have a couple of nights mm-hmm. where I'd barely sleep and I'd be pretty much okay. Yes. And now I, I hate it. I know if I don't get enough sleep one night, the next day is kind of... It throws you off. And, can you, and it just yeah. compiles. Yes. Yeah. And can you imagine a young mother like doing right. that for weeks and weeks on end? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then there's a level... I of, think about that yes, sometimes. Yes. And then there's a level of anxiety that comes along with not sleeping. Like the moment you have a couple nights of yeah. bad sleep, then you start worrying mm-hmm. about it. So imagine having mm-hmm. a baby or being pregnant and already... You know, one of the things that we haven't touched on yet that I'm just going to dive into is that being pregnant puts everyone's trauma on blast. Like all of their life experiences, Mm. you're vulnerable when you're pregnant, you're at an increased risk of so many things. And so anxiety Mm. is typically higher anyways, but you throw in not sleeping, being uncomfortable, all of these things. And it, it sets up the spiral to happen very quickly, if not addressed. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so functional and integrative mm-hmm. psychiatry. Tell us about that, Shannon. So functional what? and integrative psychiatry is the area of psychiatry that uh, 
not a ton. Like some psychiatrists and nurse practitioners are really open to it. So it, it has to kind of be your your jam, right? The thing that you are into. Um, back in the day, there was, I used to know someone who said, oh, a physician told me once, not to take vitamins, you're just making expensive urine. And which back in like the 1980s, probably very true because our food was more nutritious. Now we have to replace those things. So the functional and, and integrative portion of psychiatry is the focus on nutritional replacement of things that are lacking. Right. So, um, right. so that is, I it. Love does that. that also like incorporate, um, like coping skills as well? Uh, because that's something that I've been interested in just like personally. Um, I'm not, I've, I've never been against like, uh, psychiatric meds or anything. Mm -hmm. If somebody really needs them, I support that. Um, but I think it sometimes is almost better if it comes along with the coping skills or, you know, I focus on like mindfulness or meditation and, and that combination is sometimes more successful. Absolutely. Um, no, it, it definitely yeah. is. And the only hiccup in that equation is how trauma exposed someone is. So one of the things mm-hmm. that I do is I meet my clients exactly where they are. And in my perfect world, my clients would be open to, first of all, like getting out what they need to get out. What So what I know just from my experience and research in adversities in childhood is that one of the most important things is for us to be seen, heard, and validated. And in childhood, many people are not, Right. And um, so the more trauma exposure there's been, the less able the client is going to be statistically and from the science science approach of being able to do all those things. Like even meditating, if mm-hmm. someone has a high exposure to trauma or they have post-traumatic stress disorder, the idea of meditating is overwhelming to them and it will literally make them not come back and see me. If I say, oh, I want you to meditate, yeah. can you try meditating? Wow, yeah. it, because they can't be present in their body oftentimes because of the trauma yeah. they've been through. And what does meditation ask you to do? Be present, right? Be, so, yes, yeah. Exactly. So for people who are able, absolutely give them all the resources. Talk about, you know, um, the food we eat, the supplements we take, the exercise we get, the sleep we get, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And then if they still need medication, they need medication. If they're not able to do that and they just want medication, that's where I'm going to meet them. But from the evidence-based perspective, yeah. you're not wrong that all of it, it takes a village literally, and it takes a village in everything we yeah. do. And it's every resource we have. Right. How do you know when you're talking to somebody, maybe it's the first time mm-hmm. you're, you're meeting with someone, do you like kind of just sense it out that, okay, maybe I shouldn't talk, you know, su- jump those steps ahead yes. and suggest they try this or that? Yes. So or, my initial intake yeah. is anywhere from one to two hours long. And I spend that time okay. really getting to know who they are. And I ask them questions about, um, I even ask, you know, what do you believe in? What's your spiritual or religious identification? Mm. Because even that, everything is helping me gauge how I am able to say things in a way to my client that they'll be able to hear me. Yeah. So I, yeah. like I said, in the little before chat we had that I do my best to make sure no one knows what my beliefs are because my job is to support them wherever they are, no matter what their beliefs are. And so I support people from all Mm -hmm. walks of life. And if someone says, um, I'm a very liberal Democrat, blah, 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 or I am a very strict Jewish belief person, whatever it is that helps gauge what I'm going to talk about. Right. So like, I'm not going to talk about, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, like, doing what I call woo-woo things with someone who's like a very traditional 
Catholic or Christian, oh, yeah. who, you know, that, who's like, nope, just give sense. me the Bible, which is good. We all have to have the things we believe in, but I'm definitely not going to talk about things that would feel uncomfortable for them. So that's how, mm-hmm. yes, I, I prod them yeah. as long as they can take it on the first visit. <laughs> and then by the end, I know yeah. how I'm going to speak to them and, and what sorts of things so I'm going to offer. That's I feel great. like Sally and I were kind of just talking about this or like if Sally was a, a therapist, she'd encourage them like <laughs> her <laughs> way too much yes. right off the what bat. What would you have people do in Sally? Would, I want to know. <laughs> I would not be good. I would not be good. Yes, you would be good. You I learn. Would, you learn. That's, that, she would be great. Yeah. I just think no. she'd, she'd be like, just yeah. go out there. Yes. Well, and the other thing is too, is I had to learn after, shortly after I was in practice, I had to learn that just because mm. I had all the resources. And I don't mean I have all the resources, but just because I had a ton of resources that can help people navigate through this life. One doesn't mean people want to hear it. It doesn't mean that they're ready to hear it. And if I give Mm -hmm. too many, then it's going to overwhelm them and they're not going to come back. So it it is completely a dance every time. And okay, is this person open to hear this? Can they hear it? Is it too much for them? Do I, there are some clients that I very gently give give information and baby pieces to just because I don't want to overwhelm them. I also have clients, one of the things that I do is I de-prescribe medication. If they're on too much medication, it happens often, you know, you do, you give one medication for one thing, and then you give another medication for, to help a side effect of that medication, mm-hmm. or it's not working well yes. enough. And so eventually you're like, whoa, you're on five medications. Let's do what we can to take you off of some of these. Right. So in taking yes. them off of them, there are even some clients that I have that I give them the full power to slow, to decrease the dose at the pace with which they want, because it feels overwhelming mm, for them to yeah. have someone tell them, okay, I want you to take away 50 milligrams right. a day for a week. Yeah. Even that's overwhelming. So some of my clients, they'll tell me, okay, this is what I've been doing for the last month. I decreased my dose by a hundred milligrams a day. And that is very empowering to them. Wow. Great. That's so yeah. great. So yeah. then Shannon, um, do any of your patients have um, uh, anything like schizophrenia or uh, psychosis, anything like yes. that? Yes. Yeah. Some of my clients yeah. do. So that, yes. Right. Um, right. More so now I'm more private practice for a short period of time for about a year and a half or so. I saw um, uh, some county behavioral health clinic or some county oh, behavioral yeah. health clients, not in Ventura County in another County. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were what we would classify as severely mentally ill. So a lot of schizophrenia, yeah. schizoaffective disorder, which is schizophrenia with also bipolar disorder symptoms. Um, lots of clients with bipolar disorder, almost all of them had complex trauma, which is really the root of everything is what we would call complex PTSD mm-hmm. or complex trauma. Um, yeah. and, um, and then, I also work with foster kids in um, Los Angeles County. That was uh, eye-opening experience. Yes, wow, very sick yeah. kids. Some really yeah, sick just because of their yeah. life experience. Um, and yeah. now I'm more private practice, so I see more of your run-of-the-mill depression, anxiety, anxiety, uh, perinatal mood disorders. Um, I have some depression with psychosis, which is people don't understand that sometimes just being depressed can make you have hallucinations. And it doesn't mean that you have mm, schizophrenia. Yeah. It just means that you are so depressed that this is how your body is telling the story. Is right. Yes. Wow, yes. that's interesting. I've come across that some of my yes. regular patients postpartum depression and anxiety, and they start getting like really paranoid yes. thoughts and. Uh, they're the ones I sent. Yes, you. that postpartum uh, psychosis is real. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. But we do a little mental health screen, you know, Mm -hmm. with our postpartum women. And uh, sometimes they have like a a medium type score or a low type Mm -hmm. score. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it it doesn't seem high enough that we should start medication. Mm -hmm. So we do try all of the other things that are evidence based. Yeah. You know, exercise, food, uh, sleep, Mm -hmm. uh, just the stuff that we just talked about. Mm Should I also be sending those ladies to you? I mean, they should be seeing just someone. The numbers, just yeah, they should yeah, be seeing someone right. just so that it takes it off your plate because, um, right. you know, twenty percent of all maternal deaths after six months are to suicide, and so that's six months. Oh, wow. That's past the first you know period of time where right. they're sleep deprived and we all of these things. Them. So, so right. any indication um, of yes. uh, or having yes. one visit finding out where they are. Do you screen them at what, what month intervals do you screen them? So after they have their postpartum visit, the six week, when do they come back to see you after that? Well, if that number's high, I want to see them, you know, depending on mm-hmm. the number, maybe in two weeks mm-hmm. or a week, we do a 72 hour follow-up call, Okay, but definitely within a month. Do you have them come back? I know, I don't remember it being like this when I had children, but do you have them come back yeah. at three, six or nine months? No, um, I usually like I'll take them off work for a month mm-hmm. and I might extend to take them off for another month. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we send them to their primary care. Got it. Or to you mm-hmm. if, or someone like I have you, seen right? some of those people. Yeah. Yes, yes. I have seen some of those yeah. clients. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I know the recommendation is uh, that moms and delivering people are screened at the six week visit and then three, six, nine and 12 months. And what... That how it works as a team effort is that the pediatrician catches them at the other visits, right? Because the infant goes right. in to be seen yes. much more. So hope the hope is, yeah. is that the pediatrician's office will be doing the screening of the parent um, at the three, six yeah. and nine and 12, 12 month visit. Um, the other thing that's really right. interesting to know is that, and I think Sally, you and I have talked about this in the past, but that um, one in seven moms or delivering people will develop postpartum, a postpartum either depression, anxiety, something, but one in 10 partners. So that means that people don't understand this, that partners can get postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety as well. And it manifests in completely different ways. And if they're partners, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. How do we check that? Because we don't see the partner. Uh, So should we ask the birthing person? How yes, ask how the partner's doing and if they are yeah. showing any signs, if they happen to come that's in. That's one of those moments. Yeah, that's one Sorry. of those moments where you ask, yeah. How's your partner yeah. doing? Because oftentimes right. how a partner will show depression is through anger, irritability, yeah. avoidance, like not coming home. What is mm. what is someone who just has a new baby? What do they need? They need their partner home to support them. And when the partner is yeah. depressed, they will often spend the evening after they get off work, like taking a really long time getting home, not because they don't want to be around their partner, yeah. or their baby, they're just depressed or they're anxious and they don't know how to navigate that or manifest or, you know, talk about it. Right. So, right. so when they come in, if you ask them, you know, here's, we're screening you. If the partner's there, screen them. If they show up that they're depressed or something, you say, you know, I'm going to recommend that you call your primary care provider because this is a risk for you as well. And the other thing is, is having the conversation throughout the pregnancy, then it's not a surprise to the partner that, hey, FYI, Mm. 
especially if you have a client who had pre-existing depression or anxiety, they're at an increased risk of having a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. So if you know they had depression or anxiety in the past, then it is a good conversation to have with both of them. Hey, you're at an increased risk and your partner's at an increased risk because you're at an increased risk. That is the only the only reason why, because that person is at an increased risk. Yeah. And then wow. the, the poor couple, they they start going away from mm-hmm. each other at the very time when they need yes. each other the most. Because yeah. remember, I said it when we first started this chat, it puts your trauma on blast for everyone, right. not just the person yes. having the baby. It puts every yes. bit of trauma that partner has on blast as well. Yes. So yeah. trauma. Yes. Shannon, trauma is a big, big conversation on its own. Isn't oh, it? heck yes. Um, <laughs> I, I've been really, really trying hard to reduce any kind of perception of trauma mm-hmm. or trauma itself at my births. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make them very peaceful, very calm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and um, I I think it's really important. Yeah. The more I delve into it and the more I try to make a birth a certain way, the more I realize how many traumatic births I've actually witnessed in the Me past. too. And <laughs> yes, Shannon. Yes. And, and how are those poor women yes. doing out there yes. now? Or, yeah. or who did yeah. I cause trauma to? I mean, oh, you and I oh. both know, right? Being labor nurses, yeah. I it is something I yes. think about. And I know that I would be yes. a completely different labor nurse now. I always felt like I, I was, while I was not trauma informed at that time, because I didn't even know it was a thing or that we needed to be aware of it. I, I always treated yeah. my patients in a way that felt safe and empowering to them. But in hindsight, it is powerful to be able to go, hmm. Yeah. Or even with the emergency births, right? Or the emergency C-sections or the emergencies yes. that happen in labor and delivery, having that moment right. to, and you and I've talked about this in the past, having a moment to give them right. space to talk about what their perception of it was. And then validating their experience and explaining, this is what happened from our side. This is why we couldn't tell you what was happening because the baby was at risk, right? That even that can be healing and mitigate any- That clarity. mm -hmm, Mitigate any post-traumatic, what they call postpartum post-traumatic stress disorder. So- Right, exactly. Sometimes I have to stop in my tracks and and witness, really stand and witness what's happening. Mm -hmm. Like a a young woman who is happily laboring, getting close, Mm -hmm. and then- you know, some emergency might occur. And the next thing she's naked in a room full of people Mm -hmm. and, you know, bright lights and there's the C-section happening. And it's like, we must slow down some little part to witness and to, to look after her. I agree. And to give her space and time to talk about it afterwards. It's what makes you so good at what you do. Because not all providers give clients the space they need, or if they don't have an awareness of it, right, of how even giving birth is traumatic. I mean, what it does to our bodies. And while we are, we do have more awareness about it. And there are some people that have this belief of don't tell me about everything is not trauma. The reality is, is this journey Mm -hmm. is traumatic in many ways. And and we're all trying to navigate through it as best we can. And we have to give people the space, giving them the space, seeing, hearing, validating their experience is very healing. Even if it's just to like hold the space and say, I see you. And that really sucks that you had to go through that. And even that Mm -hmm. is healing. Yes. Yeah. I recently had a woman who'd ha- previously had an emergency cesarean mm-hmm. section and she came to me and she says, can you help me with hypnosis, mm-hmm. Sally? So I did a hypnosis Love that. for her mm-hmm. 
And all of the things that had gone wrong in the script, we put it all right. You so reprogrammed. Love that. Yeah. Yes. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a helpful can, technique. Yeah. You can you can yeah. do that with any, I mean, not, not mm -hmm. that it's that simple, but sometimes if I have like an embarrassing moment, mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, I yeah. try to rewrite it in my mind, tell myself it happened a different way. I love that. Yeah. Did. That's so That great. was less cringy. Yes. I love that. Well, <laughs> but I mean, on the smaller scale, like, you know, the hypnosis, yeah. you can, you can try to to calm those those memories a little i am a right. big fan of clinical hypnotherapy for my clients and i know sally that you do clinical hypnotherapy and i love that like helping them visualize what their story is going to look like and reprogramming the story they're telling themselves because there are i mean it's i mm -hmm. often find myself asking well what's the story you tell yourself about being depressed right what's the story you right. tell yourself right. about yes. being anxious it's a narrative it's a narrative yes. and we are so powerful yeah. what you say like it is what your body mind yeah. and soul expect it's like oh yeah. of course we're depressed so of true. course we feel this way all yeah. the time yes. and so helping shift that perspective through something like clinical hypnotherapy it can be profoundly beneficial i have lots of clients who do um go see a clinical hypnotherapist. In fact, Sally, if you were if you were in clinical hypnotherapy and not midwifery, I would be sending you a lot more people just for that alone. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. It's powerful yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's not it's not like the what you think of when you think yes. of hypnosis or it's like you're about to fall asleep yes. and yeah you know, dance on the stage. No, no, it's not. I yeah. tell people this, <laughs> not is, like that. this is no entertainment, uh, hypnotherapy. Yeah. They're not going to make you quack like a duck yeah. or get up and run around the street. Yeah. Right. It. Exactly. And yeah. then you have full capacity to get up if you need to. It's just puts you in a really yeah. calm state and talks to your subconscious brain. So that is, right. if we're talking about, and I'm going to talk a little bit about hypnotherapy, even though I don't do it, because when I refer people, this is how I give them the education. And that's that, you know, our subconscious yeah. mind is, is, 95% of our knowledge and only about 5% of the real estate in our brain and our conscious yeah. mind is 95% of the real 95% of the real estate and only 5% of what we know. So everything you think you know, you're working hard to get over your depression and anxiety, your subconscious mm -hmm. or that little girl that is stuck in your subconscious is like, no, no, we're not ever going to feel better. We're not good enough to feel better, right? And pro right. programming, resetting that program can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Or or programming it mm -hmm. in the first place. Yes. So that she's not traumatized. One of the classes I do is a hypnobirthing class. I love now. that. And uh, I, I, I'm really getting to love it too, mm -hmm. because I'm getting feedback from the patients. And even if they end up having a different birth to what they were mm -hmm. hoping for, they seem to have a, a, a really good experience. Amazing. And so that they're looking back without a traumatic yes. uh, memory. Yes. Good That's amazing. Yeah. Do you do, um, on your intake, do you do any type of, um, adversities, exposure screening or anything like that? Uh, you know, it's very tiny. It's a little few questions. I know you talked to me about that before and I haven't started it and we should. Oh no. It, and Tell it doesn't me. have to be, and it doesn't even have to be the ACE screening. So that the big one is the yeah. ACE screening, but the ACE screening, yeah. it, and so what I have found through my experience is that can also be yeah. triggering and upsetting to people to answer these questions. So oh, yeah. really engaging. Really, yeah. So what I do is I take it, you know, the adverse childhood experience screening is a 10 question questionnaire that gauges your exposure to adversities before 18 years of age that sets you up to be depressed, anxious, have all sorts of things. Also, 
well, I'll get into the, the details of it in a second, but it asks about if you had enough food, if you had a safe place to mm. live, um, if you were hit, slapped, shoved, pushed, if you were verbally yelled at, if you were manipulated, if you were emotionally abused, um, if you lived with someone with mental illness, if you lost a parent to divorce, or if someone went to prison, these basic questions, right? Um, but these questions were gauged off of the initial study that was done in the late 90s in 1998 um, by a doctor named Dr. Vincent Felitti and a whole group of providers. And they did this, this um, um, research through Kaiser Permanente. So the research, the results were profound, but they were essentially like over 55, 60,000 white middle-class Americans was what this study was based off of. So you throw in all the other oh. adversities and there's a lot of additional yes. exposure if you count in like immigration or lo lower mm. socioeconomic, um, being survivors mm. of having family members who've been through the Holocaust or indigenous people or slavery, mm. all of these things set you up. To racism. Racism, yeah. yeah. Systemic yeah. racism or non-systemic racism, just racism. So Initially, I would ask the screening and now I don't just in my questions, I like tiptoe around it in a way that doesn't feel like it's quite as pressing because that can open those wounds as well. Um, right. But in your yes. setting, you could essentially and what I really do is there's a screening for adults and there's a screening for young adults. And I actually use the young adult one on everyone because they don't have to tell me what their exposure is. So in the screening for adults, it'll ask yes or no, yes or no on all of them. And you get your score between zero and 10 for the teenage one. It basically says, I'm going to list all these things. Just tell me what your number is. So they get to keep the information to themselves. Oh, Tell me how many good. exposures yeah. you have. So that's a safer one. So you could yeah. do something like that in your practice. Okay. The reason I right. say this is that if they have any kind of um, adversities, which over 65% of us do, out of the gate, they're at an increased risk of developing a PMAD, a perinatal mood and anxiety mm -hmm. disorder. And Okay, so yeah. we can flag mm -hmm. that. You can flag it. Risk. Yes. Like we would flag somebody with high blood yes, pressure. Yes, absolutely. Diabetes. Let's flag if someone that. has an yes. ACE score of four, you definitely want them getting some help, yeah. whether it is through hypnotherapy, okay. therapy, support groups, like yeah. uh, Postpartum Support International has some really great online support groups that are free, doing any kind of support groups like that. And what, what they also know from all the trauma research is that uh, telling a pregnant person or even someone getting ready to get pregnant, because it's actually important. You don't even have to do it when they get pregnant, but when they first establish care with you, so you have a baseline, whether they're pregnant or not. Mm. And um, the what they know is that telling them your childhood does not have to be your child's childhood. And you have time mm -hmm. to do some work so that your child, your child's childhood looks different than yours. Mm -hmm. And you didn't deserve I to have that. your childhood, the childhood yeah. you had, you didn't do anything to deserve that because there's so much shame and guilt attached to when someone has a high A score. So if you have an ACE score of one, which I was alluding to the fact that over 65% of us do because divorce, the divorce rate in the United States is pretty high. Um, you have a 4% chance of being depressed enough to contemplate or attempt suicide one time in your life. If you have a score of four or more, that goes up by over 400%. If you have a score of six oh, wow. or more, your life expectancy on average will be 20 years less 
than had you not had all the trauma exposure just because of poor coping skills. So when I was doing my, my, uh, clinical scholarly project for my doctorate in our clinic, we did screenings, everyone who, who wanted to participate in the group. My, my project was on implementing the ACE questionnaire in the primary care setting because primary care providers don't know what the screening is, right? Or what the exposure is. The average exposure, the average trauma exposure for all of our patients was like 4.57, which is significant. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Thank you, Shannon. That's great. I'm going to definitely add that in yes. to my screen. Yeah. Send, yes. send us a link. I'll send to it to you. Yeah. yeah. And I'll send you the teenage one because, like I said, I'm also all about yeah. not mm-hmm. redragging people through yeah. trauma without yeah. them having a say in it. And so I give them as yeah. much power as I can. So for you saying, I'm going to show you a list, you just tell me what your number is. Even that is all you need. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Brilliant, Shannon. Always, you have such brilliant ideas. Thank you. Uh, Shannon, you mentioned Postpartum Support International. I love that. You you gave me that gift when I was doing my own doctorate uh, project. Um, I I was doing perinatal mood disorders Mm -hmm. and anxiety Mm -hmm. during COVID. Wow. Um, And so our regular numbers are like one in seven, one in eight. But mm-hmm. when I studied my own patients in our office, we found that it was more like one in four. Whoa. So do you think that was because of, of the pandemic? During, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was because they were isolated. Yes. It was, you know, no joy about it. Mm-mm. No, you know, baby showers. Mm-hmm. So they they just had their partner with them and yeah. they couldn't have who they wanted. Yeah, it was. Or they it, couldn't come into the office with them as much. That's right. right. Nobody wow. could come that's in stressful. with them. That is stressful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so you gave me that gift um, that led me to postpartum support international. So we're going to attach that to the bottom of our um I love that page here Bridget yeah they're a great organization absolutely and yeah anybody who's listening to this who might feel a little depressed or maybe you're a young mom listening to this um really listen listen and uh, take these jewels that Shannon has for us um and uh, don't ignore any of the symptoms Definitely. Talk to your doctor and your mate. Yes, body. yes. Do not ignore <laughs> them. It, our, your body, you know, our body talks to us 100% of the time. We're just not ever taught to pay attention to what it's saying. Yeah. And if we yeah. like really ask, like, what is your body trying to tell you? What did not get the attention that it needed? What do you need to talk about to move forward? Right. Mm-hmm. If you look generationally, um, like I was talking earlier about Gen Z's and and millennials, we are starting to pay attention more. Older generations, myself included, have a harder time really paying attention to what our body says. I wish that our young people were taught to pay attention to what their body were saying, and hopefully at some point they will be. But symptoms arise when you're not hearing what your body is telling you. Right. Definitely. um, Coming from or not, mid- or if you're younger, sorry to uh, interrupt. No, it's just okay. like when you're younger, you don't necessarily have the dialogue yes. to explain it. Absolutely, like I, I, I'm still somewhat fresh out of college, mm-hmm. and um, there, there's definitely just a variety of you know mm-hmm. people who have coping mechanisms and people who just have none. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and you. you you know, when you're thrown into a situation that's a big life change yes. or transition going into college, there's a lot that can go wrong. And there's a lot that, you know, some people aren't equipped to handle mm-hmm. or, you know, sometimes not even the school is equipped to handle 
absolutely like mental health absolutely you know, uh, tools and stuff so there's there's that aspect of it as mm-hmm. well well and it's i like, would as you get older <laughs> no it's you might true find a way to talk about it but and what you yeah. learn when you're young continues on is perpetuated unless you learn a different coping skill and i would even challenge mm-hmm. to say that everything is a coping skill. It's either healthy or unhealthy. And so that, and going back to exposure to trauma, you know, you're at an, what we know about people who smoke, who vape, who use drugs or alcohol excessively, all of that is uh, unhealthy coping skills because of not having any sort of an outlet to let out what they've been through or what their experiences are. Um, yeah. So it's, we just want people to learn healthy coping skills and heal those unhealthy ones. Do you ever deal with also um, dependency on antidepressants as well? You said you were, you talked a little bit about like, you know, prescribing. Yes. Yes. Right. Deep prescribing. I've also seen bad cases from people that I've known where they've been on it and then they stop cold turkey. The cold turkey stop is not going to end well for anyone. I mean, that is, and and I want to clarify that dependency on a, on an antidepressant in particular. So I'm talking like the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, mm-hmm. the SNRIs, the selective um, or the serotonin norepinephrine um, inhibitors. There are a couple of classes of medications that your body gets used to it in the sense because we, our body, our body needs homeostasis, right? So whatever our normal looks like, that is our homeostasis. So when I mm-hmm. give a medication for depression or anxiety, it changes it changes what the body's levels are. And so as we get to a level that manages the depression and anxiety, the body's adjusting to a new homeostasis. And so mm-hmm. as it gets there, they might have side effects in their head or their stomach because that's where most of the chemical messengers um, or neuro- neurotransmitters are. Once they get used to it though, all the side effects go away minus one or two. There's one or two that hang around. Gotcha. But with coming off of the medication, I always try and give my clients a, a realistic expectation expectation about how long they'll be on medication. And if it's their first time with depression, um, then I like to keep them on medication for anywhere from like 10 to 12 months after they are feeling good. And the reason is, is that if you stop the medication, the moment you're feeling better, you're actually increasing your risk of having rebound depression or anxiety that's higher than the initial um, Mm. episode, leaving your body, leaving the medication going for eight to 10 months or 10 to 12 months after the first episode teaches your body how to manage the symptoms in its own right. So that when you take the person off of the medication, if they do become depressed or anxious again, it will not last as long, be as intense or happen as frequently. So having said that now, Mm -hmm. I know this is a long way to get around to it. Having said that one, it's time to take someone off of the medication. You taper them down slowly because remember their body has a new level of homeostasis. So if you just pull that medication away, you're taking them back down to this homeostasis that their body's not used Mm -hmm. to like what the new normal looks like. So I taper people off. If they stop right away, they are at an increased risk of developing um, rebound depression or anxiety. If they've had multiple episodes of depression or anxiety that is significant enough that warrants medication, they probably would need to stay on medication longer if medication is the route that feels right for them. Because this is, again, the other thing I say is I never ever like force someone to take medication. I, one of the things I say when I first meet them is I'm not going to bully you into doing anything you don't want to do. This is your journey. And my goal is to uplift and empower you to navigate through your symptoms in a way that feels right for you. And if medication is it, I'm here for that to help you with it. If, it, if it's not, there's lots of other ways to do it. 
So good. So I love great. that. Yeah. I, it yeah, makes you, me sad because I feel like yeah. there's sometimes people that, yeah. you know, are given antidepressants and not the education yes. also or the yes. support to know how and when to, yes. you know, change that later. The number of people so you, that um, are on when I, because I take a long time to describe the medication, probably too much. Sometimes when you talk about the medication as a whole, people say, oh no, never mind. I don't want to do it. It sounds scary. Right. Or when mm-hmm. I, when my primary care provider put me on it, they just gave it to me and said it was for depression. They didn't tell me anything else. Right. right. But I am right. all yeah. about informed decisions. You need to know what yeah, you're taking. Good. You need to know yeah. what the expectation yeah. is. You need to know what it looks like so that you can decide if it's good for you. And the the other thing that I really stress is informed consent, a patient or client in, like saying, yes, I'm okay taking this does not mean they have to take it forever. They can stop. My only question or request from them is let me know what you're doing, what your thoughts are, right. so I can be a part of the plan and help you do it in a way that feels safe for you so that you're not going to have rebound right. depression or anxiety. So good. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I, you mentioned uh, tra- uh, trauma being stored in our body. Yes. Um, uh, well, I, I, of course, come across women all the time mm-hmm. during their birth where sexual abuse yes. will show up. Like one in four yes. women will have suffered some form of sexual mm-hmm. abuse before we get to them. Mm-hmm. But if it shows up for them, then it can be so difficult, so hard for them. Um, and then, of course, they, we want to check the cervix, but it's like, no, yes. touch me. Don't, they don't want anybody to touch them. And and. I, I would love if you would give us a few, you know, tips on how to deal with that. I, I have my own way, but I, yeah. I would love to hear if you have a better way. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a better way, but one of the things I I am a big advocate of uh, planning for the disaster, planning for the emergency. Right. And that's where, honestly, like an initial screening, if you don't even ask, if you don't ask about all the trauma, do you ask about sexual abuse in their prenatal care? Well, I do. I, like in the first visit, I do. I broach the subject and ask questions, but I know that I have some women that they're not even aware that yeah. they've been abused. That is true. And so it's like a cell memory and, and that seems to be the worst. It is. And they're not even sure what they're afraid of. They, they bonded with me. They know me, but mm-hmm. all of a sudden they don't want anybody. And it's not like we're hurting them, yeah. but it, it is like we're hurting them. And I really wish I had a better way. Yes. So are you asking specifically about the people who, when you are at the birth, right. And you need to do a vaginal exam and that's when it like presents itself. Is that what you're commenting on? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because that's the one that will like creep out of the woodwork. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I always ask for permission mm -hmm. that I'm going to check you. And are you ready now? Is this, okay, if I keep going, mm-hmm. you know, that's um, really good. Giving them the power yeah. is the, the I best didn't way. Always. I have to be honest. I didn't always, I thought Me that too. they're there. They have their legs open. <laughs> it's time to check their cervix, mm-hmm. but we've come a long way. Now I, I yeah. I, I mean, it makes you think about ask. possible facilities we might have worked at in the past where there's like, it's a teaching facility and everyone comes in to do a vaginal exam. Right. And the amount of trauma, not knowing for that, for that provider, not knowing, like, I almost feel like it should be on the chart at teaching facilities, right? If someone's going to go in and do a vaginal exam on a client that's not theirs or that they're just following for a couple of hours to get the experience that it says trauma exposure, 
you know, six out of 10, seven out of 10, so that they know walking in that door, that that is not a good candidate for a teaching person or for for not even to not even ask. Yeah. Yeah. So so that is in having that exposure for you. Yes. And, and for you, I think that's a really good idea being in the hospital, like knowing what their trauma exposure is, knowing this client, I'm going to give them every bit of power I possibly can. So that means really kind of like, it, it's been one of the most humbling things for me as a provider to say to myself, it doesn't actually matter. Like, yes, it matters evidence-based care. Yes, it matters that I'm delivering safe care. But what matters more is that I deliver safe care in a way that feels empowering for them and gives them the power. When they have had so much trauma exposure, they have no power. Internally, they feel like they have no power. Everything has just been done to them. So giving them the power, saying, you know what? We're going to have to do a couple of vaginal exams. What do you need in order for that to feel safe for you? And if you notice like that kind of like spiral shows up, right, where all of a sudden it's touched on an old wound that they did not know was there, that you just like regroup and even just step away unless the baby's in imminent danger or there's something going on and saying, you know what, clearly this, there is something I want to tell you Mm -hmm. you're safe. That is really the biggest thing. It is really important for our body, mind, and soul to hear that we are safe. I know that this is something you haven't done before, or it's whether it's your third, fourth, or fifth delivery, everyone is different, but I need you to know that even though I have to do this vaginal exam, you are safe and I'm going to give you as much of the power as I possibly can. So you tell me, what do you need so that I can do a vaginal exam and check and see where your baby's head is at? And then let them talk about it. And then just remind them, I just want you to know you're safe. You are safe. You are safe. And tell them, I tell my clients when things come up and there's something that feels unsettling to, to one validate that, okay, there's an experience that's going to need attention. It's not going to get attention while I'm having a baby. Right. Like, and so mm. validating that body's experience of, okay, yes. note to self, there's something that I'm going to have to pay attention to, but for now we are safe. It's not whatever it is that's there. We are safe. We are going to get through this and we will deal with this when we're done. And so having that mantra, we are safe, we are safe, we are safe, we are safe, can take down that. It can de-escalate it a little bit and give them the power. Wonderful. Great. This reminds me also about like just the natural birth aspect where um, my mom's mentioned Mm -hmm. some women don't even want to go into the hospital to do their natural Mm -hmm. birth because they feel like they're not heard yes or they don't know that they really can speak up and say like this is how i want my birth to be and and just making it clear that when any patient comes in they will be heard and they can they can determine how they want you know absolutely to go as much as possible sometimes when i when i feel that this is a a traumatized woman i'll write you know, to do as few cervical yes. exams as is possible. Yes. Not mm. just checking every hour to see. Just, yes. You know, one on admission, maybe one thread, maybe one then mm-hmm. when she's complete. Or I love that. Even. I love that. And giving them the, the power, like I said, unless there's some danger to the baby, right? Giving right. them the power to say, okay, I'm ready to be checked. Or you give them a window. We're going to need to check between like four and six hours, but we're going to let you tell us yeah. when you're ready for that. It is all about feeling empowered and like what they are feeling matters and their experience matters. And you're not wrong, Bridget, which you said that especially for deliveries in any 
honestly, in any arena of uh, our Mm -hmm. medical system, um, there are really great providers out there. Don't get me wrong, but our system is built on a patriarchal system of what I say Mm -hmm. goes and I'm the one with the expertise. You don't have it. You're just here. So you're going to take what I tell you to take, but it's just not appropriate. Yeah. Right. I feel so lucky. (laughs) I know I haven't, I haven't had a birth or pregnancy ever, right? But I feel so lucky that I, I get all of this in, insight and wisdom from you guys. That oh, you know, thank you. Whenever well, the I'm time here does too. Come. When it happens, you can exactly. We'll get you ready. Yes. I'll come back to Kelly. Yes, or we I know can you're so more. lucky, Bridget. You're yeah. so yeah. Lucky. You are well, very lucky. yeah. I mean, it is. It is honestly a blessing because you know, I I know people my age who also have had yeah. babies at this point. And, you know, I just kind of think about it. I feel like I've been talking to my mom about this stuff my whole life. Mm-hmm. Like she She's told me so many stories and I used to come in and visit both of you guys. I remember. Yeah. So sweet. <laughs> the, I can't believe you're an adult. <laughs> yes. We're just, I can't believe it either. Yeah. Not really. I'm really not. You're really not. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like I've had that exposure to it and I I know that I can trust medical providers when I go pretty much anywhere because yeah. I I feel like I've had that good experience with you guys. I love um, that. But some people haven't. No, and, they haven't. You know, it's it's good. They should listen to the bleeding truth. Yes, yes they should. <laughs> and there is a whole is socioeconomic component of it as well. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. difference in yeah. facilities right. and hospitals mm-hmm. and True. options oh and... Uh, yeah. yeah, it is. It was one of the hardest when I made the decision to step away from the county behavioral health that was outside of the area we live in, as well as the um, nonprofit that worked with lower socioeconomic families and foster in the foster system. It was a decision that I had to make for myself because I needed to do my own self care. I was working too many hours, but it was really hard to leave because. I know. So going back and bringing us back full circle, Sally, to the very beginning, we haven't talked about like how I feel like I'm a different provider. And I knew I was a different provider for some of these clients, especially in in the foster system and a system that tells kids they have to take medication. If the judge says you have to take medication, if I say they have to take medication, they have to take medication. And I just was not that provider. And so while it was rewarding, it speaks to the breadth of disparities in our system, in Mm. our medical system about who feels like they can speak their truth and who doesn't feel like they can speak their truth. And my goal is to give Mm -hmm. everyone a space. I don't care who you are, how young, how old, how much or how little education you have. I am going to hear you and I'm going to see you. And I, in fact, need you to speak your truth to me so that I can give you the best care and come up with a plan that is good for them, not for me. It doesn't have to be a plan that's good for Mm -hmm. me. They, that's so Amazing. great. I love that. So Beautiful. Uh, yeah. if you're looking for a really good psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner <laughs> who will really want you to tell their bleeding truth, yes. go to Shannon Enoch. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's like our births, like I... I don't care what kind of birth plan you have. Yeah. You know, maybe it's medicated, unmedicated, but I'm going to try and help yeah. you have the birth you want. I love that. Uh, and yes. Yes. And we want to hear your bleeding truth and we want to help you. Yes. Whatever way we we can. all have a bleeding truth. We all have a bleeding yes. truth and it needs to be appreciated. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. We all, we all yes. have a journey and uh, it needs to be appreciated. 
So thanks again for listening. We really appreciate it. And um, if you like what we're doing, give us a bit of a review on Apple. That would help us so much. And um, if you come across a subscribe button, press the subscribe button. It doesn't cost you anything.